Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not um, ever known to who break your promises. We thank you that you are a God who, uh, when you commit yourself to doing that which you have stated that you will do, we thank you that you can be counted on to do that, and you've shown yourself to be that way in history, and we thank you that we come to you as the God who is the keep, promise-keeping God, the God whose word is true, the God whose word is reliable, uh, the God whose word is trustworthy. We pray that we might uh, not only be thankful for the character that you have as being one who is honest and true, but Lord, also that what we read in your word is true. It is truth that is designed to uh, shape our lives, to help us understand who you are, understand what it means to live in your presence, and also understand how the gospel can change us, transform us. So Lord, uh, guide us by your spirit of truth during this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God's will is clearly revealed in the Word of God, and it tells us that gospel ministry, it is God's will that gospel ministry expand ever wider ever farther, and ever more diverse. Because isn't that what Jesus said to his followers? Go and make disciples of not just a select number of people who are like you in one particular place, but go and make disciples of all ethnos is the word. It's, it's people groups of the world. He also said in Mark chapter 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And so we understand then that Jesus never expected his church to be anchored and tied to a specific location. That is, it was never meant to be just only in Jerusalem. But Jesus clearly uh, also did not intend that his church be made up of one exclusive ethnic group or one exclusive uh, race of people. No, the church is not just made up of Jewish people. God had to make that very clear as this new chapter of his work there began uh, after Jesus ascended to heaven. For example, in Romans chapter 1, we read that wonderful verse, verse 16. Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel is the power of God and salvation unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why did he have to add that last phrase? Why does he have to say to the Jew and to the Greek, because that's what the church had to be reminded of again and again. It is God's intention, as we look through the book of Acts, that the working of the ascended Christ through his apostles continue to what? Expand the gospel witness out, starting in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Hopefully you are familiar with that. You've heard that a few times. We're doing a little review here so that you'll have that down. Now, as the gospel witnesses kept going outward, as we've seen in the book of Acts, and that's exactly what we've been noticing. As you continue reading the book, it's gone further and further. It's gone to the Samaritans thus far. We have seen the power of the gospel to change the hearts of unbelievers who have been dead in their sins and now they're made alive in Christ. 
But we've also seen the power of the gospel to change the hearts of God's people. That the people of God, through the gospel, are changing their attitudes. They're changing their their, uh, view of and attitudes toward outsiders, toward people who are the undesirables, quote-unquote. One of the great challenges that the early church had to deal with head-on was to root out all prejudice and root out all racial pride. And so the gospel is designed to do that. And as the circle of believers there continues to expand, it included and enveloped the Samaritans. And now it's gone further now. And we read here in chapter 10 of the gospel coming into a, to a Gentile city, Caesarea. And there Cornelius is brought to faith in Christ along with the members of his household. It's clear that the church cannot any longer put up this wall that says you are a person that is not, you're not allowed to be an equal member of this fellowship of Christ followers. No, the church is to be inclusive of those who are true believers. And God by His Spirit had to intervene for Peter to even go into Cornelius' home. You remember we saw that last, last week? And on this occasion when Peter's there explaining the gospel to this Roman centurion Cornelius, God, by His Spirit, imparts this amazing new life in Cornelius. He's an outsider, and yet he's now joined to Christ by faith and joined to others of similar like precious faith. And he's also working in the hearts of Peter and those who have accompanied him and now to the church in general to expand and understand what love really looks like. Love says, I take you and accept you even though you're different from me, even though you don't do the things that I've had to do, I nonetheless love you in Christ. This morning I want to invite you to consider the fact of this giving of the Holy Spirit, which is really found at the end of chapter 10. So that's really what I'm going to focus on, verses 44 to 48. And the reason I had us read together chapter 11 is because that's sort of a review. It's a way in which the reaction is made to what occurred here in verses 44 to 48. And Peter explains it, defends it, and we recognize uh, in some ways that through this Holy Spirit, Luke is is on purpose repeating it. Why? Because it's so important. He is saying it clearly and clearly several times through this text. We're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in how he builds and constructs an indestructible, indestructible bond of unity among people who are diverse Christians. And I want us to consider the unique ways he did that here in Acts chapter 10 in Caesarea, where he unifies this people who are, again, had nothing in common with each other. They may have spoken a similar language, perhaps, but they are now going to be what? Joined together in Christ in their conversions, and God does something special with his Holy Spirit in this particular setting. But then I want to examine a much broader overview as to how God, by His same Holy Spirit, works to unify His people in much more of a normative way, in the regular way in which it happens all the time now. That was a unique thing that happened in Acts 10. But what God does in His Spirit to unify and bring together differing Christians is that something we can count on every time someone's saved. The indwelling Holy Spirit provides all sorts of practical incentives For those of us who are Christians, to lay aside all forms of prejudice, 
lay aside all forms of favoritism, laying aside all forms of exclusivity among ourselves, saying, well, I'm not going to hang out with this person. No, we are what? We're preserving the unity that God has made by His Spirit through the gospel. And the indwelling Spirit of God calls God's people to knock down walls of divisions, knock down walls of cliques and discrimination against each other. In every local gospel-proclaiming church around the world, they are to be joined together in Christ. Let's look how this happens then. And our point number one is to notice the unique ways the Holy Spirit brought about unity there in the believers in Caesarea. And you'll notice in verse 44 of chapter 10, Peter's speaking, he's still explaining the good news of the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit, while he was speaking, fell on upon all those who were listening to his message. In so doing, God, by his Spirit, gives a witness, visible proof that the Holy Spirit has indeed been given to this group of people. And how did he do that? Well, here, the evidence that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon these people is that he shows a repetition of what happened earlier in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost with the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak in known languages. And similarly here, as if Luke is trying to emphasize through Peter's eyewitness account, that similarly, the giving of the Holy Spirit comes, and after they have believed in Christ, here comes the Holy Spirit, and the evidence of that is that they too are speaking in known tongues. They responded in faith, and if you look in chapter 11, just to show you an example of this, chapter 11 of Acts 15 16, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as He did upon us at the beginning. What's He talking about? He's talking about in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how He used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's very clear that Peter's saying, this is an echo. This is very similar to what's happened before. What's different here is the initial Pentecost with all giving the Holy Spirit, baptizing the Holy Spirit, was to a Jewish predominantly group of people. Now it's to a group of Gentiles. It's a Gentile Pentecost, if you will. The giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was a one-time only redemptive historical breakthrough. This was a humongous change now, a huge shift in how God was now working in redemptive history. And the Romans, in chapter 10 of Acts, is the way in which we see the further outworking of that radical shift. And these new converts in Caesarea are speaking in tongues as a way to show and to prove that the Holy Spirit indeed is now dwelling in Gentiles. It's not limited to just a select number of individuals who are, you know, uh, more privileged than others, but notice that all of them spoke in tongues. Isn't it interesting how tongues is depicted as something that happens with a group of people, not an individual in their prayer language. He's talking about a group of people who speak in tongues. Now notice this uniqueness of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 10 is meant to reinforce for us the larger theme 
that's going on here. As we read there in chapter 11, verse uh, 17, the theme is that God is fulfilling His promises that He had made in the Old Covenant, promises from the prophets. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Peter, upon the day of Pentecost, he begins citing Joel chapter 2, the prophet Joel. And there he's promising, and, the, and Peter's noticing it now, God had promised that he would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. Does that mean every single person who's alive, the word all, inclusive to everyone, wouldn't seem to think that's the way it's understood. It means all, no matter who, what kind of people they are. It's more than just a select group of Jewish people. It's now all sorts of Gentiles along with Jews. Now the Spirit of God is being poured upon them, indicating it to be given to all believers regardless of their distinctions between age, regardless of their distinctions between their sex, their status, their ethnic background. This is an amazing work of God in keeping with His promise. The Spirit is promised for all who are afar off. If you have your Bible, I want to look at Ezekiel 36. Just for a second, notice how this promise was made. In the Old Testament, by and large, in general, the Spirit of God would be given to one particular individual or another particular individual over here, giving them a special ability, a special uh, capability to do a task for a period of time, and then the Spirit of God would sort of... Uh, would not necessarily be helping them do that any longer. It was a special situation with individual people one at a time. But in the new covenant that Jesus ratified in his death and resurrection, God, his promise has come true that he gave in Ezekiel 36. Look at verses 26 and 27 of Ezekiel 36. God promises, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. There's a radical change here going on. This is what I'm trying to show you. This is a unique situation in Acts 10, just like Acts 2 was a unique situation. See if I can illustrate in this way. Years ago, my grandfather, along with several other businessmen, decided to invest in starting some companies down in the counties of West Virginia, which at the time, in the 1920s, did not have running water in their homes. And so they realized there's a need here. They also didn't have electricity, which they got involved in that too. But anyway, they, they, they got together, they started these companies, and they started to water companies. So they went to the point of building the, the building that's going to filter the water and clean the water. And then they're going to build a pipe system where they can now distribute the water with water mains. And they, had, they would put a water tower on top of a hill. We have lots of hills in West Virginia, so you don't need a big tower on, on legs. You put one on top of the highest hill in the community. And they would distribute now the water to all the houses in town. Now that was years and years and years ago, but let's say in the interim time, someone else came and said, well, we want to develop this neighborhood here. After we've already started this water system, these people already have water. 
We want to hook into the same water system for this new neighborhood. Now, you don't start off with a brand new water filtration company. You take the same company that's been established, and now you add another pipeline and include them in the same thing. That's sort of what's happening here in Acts chapter 10. God's already established this new era of the Holy Spirit indwelling his people, and now in Acts 10, he's adding a new neighborhood, as it were, to the system that's already in place. Now, what's the point here? The point is that the apostles, like Peter, witnessed what God had done, and they are telling as best they know how, in this record in Acts 10, and repeated now in Acts 11, is to reinforce this is a magnificent milestone in what God has promised to do. And there's a mystery that has now been clarified. A mystery in the biblical terminology doesn't mean something that's uh, strange and can't be fully fathomed. A mystery is something that's hidden, and now it's clear. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bible, you can turn there just for a second, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, we have this new era of redemptive history unfolding that's unique. And we read in Ephesians 2.11, you, speaking to those who were what? Romans or people who were of a Gentile background, who did not grow up following all of the different regulations and rituals and the traditions of the Jewish people, you Gentiles who were formerly separate from the Messiah, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise without God in the world. That's what your life was characterized by. But now, in light of what's happened with the Holy Spirit's work, but now you have been brought near, making the two, that is the two different people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, but now these two have been made into one new man, reconciling them in one body to God. Through Christ, we both have access. How? In one spirit to the Father. Both, not just one, but both have access through the one spirit to the Father. And then skip a little further. And you are no longer strangers, verse 19, no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household. You've been made a member of the family of God. What's the point here? God keeps his promises. And God has said, I'm going to include people who don't have that tradition of the background. You don't have the people who are circumcised, the people who grew up with the law and all the regulations. You're joined in there, welcoming along with everybody else. We were so blessed years ago to be able to travel down to Quito, Ecuador, and to visit our daughter Catherine, who was there volunteering for a year, and thankfully so many people, you folks, have supported her to do that. And we had opportunity to see the wonderful ministry of For His Children, an orphanage that was been started by some Americans who had a heart and burden for children who, for various reasons, are abandoned or who are just given up because the family doesn't know how in the world they could afford to have another mouth to feed. And so these little children are left in boxes. They're left in various places. They're not deliberately unwanted. They're just beyond their ability to care for them, many of them. 
And some of them had special needs and some of them have uh, just difficult circumstances that tie in their story. But anyway, here are all these precious little children and they're cared for in such a beautiful way. And one of the neatest things about this ministry is that they are very careful in their selection of families who are qualified then to adopt these children. They're not left in an orphanage till they're, you know, 18 or 19, and then they age out of it and they go off on their own. The goal of the orphanage is to place these children into forever families. And so a forever family will come down after they've been approved, very carefully screened, and they will spend six weeks, maybe eight weeks, bonding with this child, spending time with the child right there at the orphanage and uh, talking and fellowshipping with this little child. The child learns to begin trust and understanding who they are, what's going to happen, and they deal with the language barrier and try to understand all these things. So this American families will come down there, and also Italian families and Ecuadorian families. And they come, and then they have a celebration of all the kids in the orphanage. This little child now has a forever family. Let's all celebrate. And I've thought to myself, once they get home, I bet they run into some interesting challenges for the forever family if they have their own children how do they perceive this new member of the family? This new member of the family doesn't have a lot in common with them. Many times they spoke, speak another language. They look a little bit different. They uh, are used to eating different food. They uh, are the center of attention for a while. And everything revolves around this new child who's been added to the family. And I would dare say, by the grace of God, many of these dear families and the siblings and the children of these families who have adopted they have been helped to prepare themselves for understanding what? We are so glad to welcome this little child into the home. They are shown to be what? People who are learning to adapt, learning to share, learning to say you're an equal member of this family. You're now part of us forever. We love you. And that's sort of, I think, what Paul is saying. Is he says there's been this major change. Now we're welcoming all these people. God has done this thing, and so therefore we celebrate the way in which he has added the people who are vastly different from the original members of the church. It's God's doing. He keeps his promises. It's a neat thing. So that's the first point. But we've got a lot to move on here. I'm going to make quick points here of the second of all these other subpoints. I want us to look now at the normative ways. The normative, that is, on a regular basis, the, the, the typical ways that the Holy Spirit brings unity among all of us as believers, no matter where we are today in today's world. If you'll notice verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, The apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And then verse 17 of chapter 11, God therefore gave him the gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word had been given to them, the word of the gospel, and they have believed upon that gospel and believed in Christ. And if they've been regenerated, then they have received the Spirit of God. And what happens for you and for me is that every person who savingly repents of their sin and who savingly believes upon Christ, we all receive the Holy Spirit. All of us. Now you say, 
What's the text on that one? Well, Romans 8, verse 8 is a very good text that teaches that important principle. Romans 8, verse 8 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. You turn it around the other way and understand it to mean that if you are a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit. The two go together. And the gospel for us is tremendous in that it's telling us what? We have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I didn't have any kind of dramatic, strange experiences going on to accompany it. No, we don't have that because, again, that was uniquely going on in Acts 2 and Acts 10. But what we receive is the promise that we have received the Spirit of God. And the gospel, it seems to me, is more than just merely reminding us and announcing to us and, and declaring to us there's been the removal of guilt, yes, there's been the removal of shame, but it also is saying to us that there is a transforming, abiding, indwelling Spirit of God who's been given to every single believer. And what does that Spirit do? I would remind you of Ephesians 1.13. I don't have time to unpack this completely, but I'm just going to touch on it. Ephesians 1.13 is Paul explains so many of the blessings that we receive in Christ. He says, In Christ you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you've got to believe in the gospel first, but having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now what do you mean by sealed? It's actually a, it serves as a verification that something is authentic. That something is truly legitimate. It is something that is important and valuable. And the king oftentimes would have his own special ring, and that ring would have an impression on it, and he would be able to put that down into some wax. And that was a seal that would indicate that this document, once it has that wax, melted wax with the seal on it, would say this is from officially from the king. Therefore, it is something that has great value. It is something that you can count on. And so the Holy Spirit has been given to us to indicate that God says, my seal is on you. You belong to me. You are officially mine forever and always. You don't need to question it any longer whether you're going to be somehow pushed aside from the family of Christ. If you have believed upon Christ and repented of your sins, the Holy Spirit has been given to you to remind you that you are what? The Holy Spirit of adoption? You are a child of God, period. And if you go through a time in life and when your faith is weak and you go to situations in life where you're not uh, strong and you're not uh, following Christ in some of your uh, means of grace in terms of your prayer life or your time in the Word and you go to a time of being sort of in a, in a, in a slog, it doesn't remove you from God. It doesn't throw you off the side and say, no, I, His seal remains on you. You belong to Him. Now I can say more about that. Um, I want to keep moving though because what I wanted to also remind you is that the Holy Spirit not only is a seal and also a person that says, you belong officially to me, God says. But notice in letter B that if we're regenerated, the Holy Spirit also 
not only unites us to Christ, he also unites us with the body of Christ. He unites us into the body of Christ. Now I get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's very important that we find the context of these verses because the spirit that the teaching about the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians is done against the backdrop of a church that's really divided. Groups that are fragmented from each other, this group saying, oh, I'm, I'm of this particular group, and I have a this group, and I've got a particular gift, and it's more important than your gift, and so therefore, hey, you know, I've got obviously more importance than you. All sorts of indicating as if there's different levels of importance within the church. It's terrible. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, amidst the background of people boasting and all sorts of division among them as to who has the more important gifts, Paul reminds them that every one of them is an equally valuable member of the body of Christ. He says, verse 13, chapter 12, For by one Spirit we were all, not some, not a few of us, but we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. You see how that's such an issue for these people? It's continually, you keep hearing this Jew and Greek. They're both added into the church. Whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So what he's saying is that the first experience in the Christian life is that God unites us by His Spirit to Christ. We are joined to Christ by faith. At the same time, we're united to other members of the body of Christ, and we become vitally connected to them. It's not limited to special people who have certain backgrounds and people who have bloodlines and they people have oh, a long heritage of, oh, my parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians, and so therefore I'm considered to be a person who's in good standing with this church and therefore have a lot more respect for that. But no, no. If you've come in and you've had a life of degradation, you've had a life of brokenness and all sorts of bad choices and all sorts of uh, dead ends you've run into life, you come to Christ in repentance of faith, you are just as much, just as important as any other member of that body of Christ. Every believer is united to the family of God. And therefore, you have to ask the question, how can you have prejudice or factions or discrimination or favoritism within the church and among the members of a church? What we're reminded of in this text is that there is no second work that we need to be waiting for of the Spirit of God. There's no subsequent work of the Holy Spirit that we need to try to somehow achieve to somehow get us on the inside, to get us into the good standing with other believers, but that God graciously, instantaneously joins us to His spiritual family when we come to Christ. Look at the quote there in your notes that I got from John Piper, which I thought was helpful. He said, God's family, which comes into being by regeneration, that is the working of the Spirit to bring us alive in Christ, is more central and more lasting than the human family that comes into being by procreation. He's saying that when you're a member of the body of Christ and of the family of God, that's a forever thing. But once you die, then the family connections are not that strong moving forward. Thirdly, I want us to notice here that if you're regenerated, 
by the Holy Spirit, come to faith in Christ and repent of your sins, then it leads to obeying Christ and eventually being baptized in water baptism. You notice in the text here in Acts chapter 10 that Peter does not just suggest baptism. Once he has seen the gospel be presented, once Peter has verified that the Holy Spirit indeed has been given to these people, they have come in faith in responding to that gospel proclamation, he says, listen, these people need to be baptized. He's not withholding water baptism from them because they come from a different background and he's not waiting for them, first of all, to become Jewish and therefore they have to be circumcised or therefore they have to go back and do a bunch of regulations and change their diet and all those things. No, no. Every believer who comes to faith in Christ that's been baptized spiritually into the body of Christ, which is what God does with the Holy Spirit, it makes no sense then to refuse that true believer from water baptism, which is nothing more than an act of obedience from a believer, someone who's a true believer, and it's done because Christ calls us to obey Him, to confess Him as Lord publicly, and to show that we are indeed acknowledging before all men that we have been united to Christ in His death and in His resurrection. Therefore, we are buried with Him, as it looks like in baptism, as we go down to the water, we've been raised to newness of life in Christ. Now, if you look at verse 17 of chapter 11, I love Peter's question, because when he comes back and reports in Jerusalem all that had taken place there in Caesarea, and he gives a very careful recounting of it, Notice what he says, verse 17. If God therefore gave to these Gentiles, like Cornelius and his household, the same gift that he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who, was that? who am I to say, well, God, if you've done this work in their lives by joining them to the body of Christ, who am I to stand in your way and say, well, God, you're not allowed to make sure that they have equal membership within the church. Peter's going, I'm not going to stand there in that way. Now, he gets some feedback and some strong reaction. You'll notice in chapter 11, verses 1, 2, and 3, he gets back to Jerusalem. He comes up in verse 2, those who were circumcised, that is, they have the Jewish background, they took issue with Peter saying, hey, you went to the, this uncircumcised men's house and you ate with them. Hey, man, you've gotten defiled. Hey, you're, you're moving way beyond the bounds of what you should be doing. They're having a hard time accepting this change. And Peter's saying there, listen here, folks, this is the change that God is doing. I'm not going to get in the way of it. And you'd be wise not to do the same. He gets concern, he gets criticism in a sense, implied criticism, but he made the correct response. And so he orders that Cornelius be baptized by the six accompanying witnesses that he brought with him. I thought that was interesting. He didn't do the baptism himself, he got others to do the baptism. And so let's be known here in our church. We as elders are committed to encouraging, promoting, um, 
challenging people in our church who have given a credible profession of faith in Christ. They have given evidence of that faith in Christ by the fruit of repentance, and we see the evidence of that in how they live their life. Then we would urge that person who is a follower of Jesus Christ to follow Christ in obedience in the waters of baptism. Now we have one important clause you need to understand where we would not do that. And we as a church leadership have decided that we think it's helpful and appropriate to not encourage children to make the same public confession of Christ in baptism, water baptism, until they're a little older. And the reason why is not to say that, we don't, that we're questioning the legitimacy of someone who can be saved in, young, in their youngest ages of life and when they're in grade school or whatever. We're not questioning that. We believe that God does work, and thank God He does. But what we are encouraging them is to wait until such time as they begin to understand more and more of the significance of their baptism, what it means, what it signifies, and the implications of that. And we're also encouraging them to see more evidence of the fruit of their own love for Christ, their own obedience to Christ, the fact that they can now begin to make their own choices, not just the choices that are dictated to them by their parents or others around them, and that children are not just doing this because they want to please their parents, they want to join in with their peers, and they want to be like everybody else. It's something that they have chosen to do because they understand it and they've given evidence of, the resp of their repentance, the fruit of repentance in their life. Now, having said that, we are having a class for baptism. If you're interested and you want to be baptized or you'd like to know more about what that means and what is involved in being baptized, we're going to teach that class next Sunday. And we urge you to look at the bulletin and be sure to follow up. If you've never been baptized and you're a Christian, you should ask yourself, why not? Are you going to get in the way of God and what He wants you to be doing? Sorry, that's sort of a Peter question, but that, that would be a good one. I want to look at another point here very quickly in the practical aspects of how the Holy Spirit unites us. And that is, letter D, if we're regenerated, then the evidence of the Spirit's work in our hearts is that the Spirit over time is going to be developing the fruit of the Spirit within us. Contrasting more and more what that looks like in our life with those who do not have the Holy Spirit and who live by the deeds of the flesh. What are the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you contrast those character traits with what are the, some of the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, Galatians 5.20, disputes, strife, dissensions, and factions. Isn't it interesting? What a contrast between the fruit of the Spirit, which would indicate what? Love and patience and working with each other who are not the same. We have our challenges, but we are seeing a love and a gentleness with each other. And whereas deeds of the flesh are what? Dissensions. I'm out of here. I'm breaking relationships with you. I have nothing to do with you. People who have then strife, filling with strife, arguing, pulling apart from others and saying, I'm no longer going to be in relationship with you. 
But when the Spirit of God is foremost in the hearts of God's people, and there's the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in the local church, the local church is going to be characterized by, and here's the answer to letter D, harmony. Committed harmony. Doesn't mean we're all the same, doesn't mean we all think the same, doesn't mean we all act the same, but there's harmony as the fruit of the Spirit is at work in us. A love for each other, prompting us to act in love toward each other, patiently responding to each other. Let me show you an illustration of how this works. Don't tell anyone, but I raided the nursery this morning. And I happened to borrow some toys from the nursery. Now here they have a whole stack of these cardboard boxes. And these happen to be pretty much the same size. They're a little bit different in color, but they're basically stackable boxes. And guess what? If you play with these for a kid for any length of time, it doesn't take long before what? They don't stick together. They just fall apart because they're just cardboard boxes. But there's another great toy, one of my favorites, Duplo boxes, Duplo box. How many of you are familiar with Legos or Duplo, right? Yeah, pretty much most of you are. It's made up of this ingenious little design so that they have their blocks, they're made of hard plastic, but they're designed to be able to be pushed down and to connect with other parts of the Duplo block system. And so you can take it and you can add different ones. And here I am trying to do this with one hand. It's very hard to do. So let's just try it this way. Notice that you have different colors being joined together. And when you take it in this form, you can now see that they hold together. There's a sense of bonding and unity and being committed to each other that's different than box that just easily let go of each other. There's no real connection there. Now, what's my point here? My point is that when you have Lego blocks, they're designed to illustrate the kind of harmony within the local church. They're not all the same, different colors, but they fit together. And sometimes God will say, all right, I want all these, I want all these blocks to be stuck together, but then I'm going to reassign this person. They're going to move off the island. So another block will come in there, and they'll join with that block. And, and God continually joins our lives together so that we accept, forbear, we are patient with one another, we love each other, we're involved in praying for each other. There's a sense in which the fruit of the Spirit is working out the life of the Spirit among us in a beautiful way. And lastly, I would just say, if we're regenerated and the Spirit of God is in us, which He promised to be, then we have to accept one another. We accept one another. I don't have time to fully expand on this, but Romans 15, I'll leave you with, with this final example of how the church, the early church, had such a difficult time fully accepting people who were different and had different backgrounds. And so in Romans 15, Paul's got one group over here who have no problem with eating food, let's say, that they bought in the marketplace that's been offered to idols. There's another group over here who says, oh, I'll never do that. And there's all sorts of people who are weak and strong. And he's saying, listen, Romans 15, 7, accept one another. Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, to the Jewish population of us, Jewish believers, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles 
to glorify God for his mercy. Do you see how those same themes also come together? Another example of Jew and Gentile. What's the point? Well, one author said it this way. If the sinless Son of God was willing to bring sinners into God's family, how much more should forgiven believers be willing to embrace each other in spite of our disagreements on non-essentials or various matters of our conscience? And so there will be things we do disagree on, but nonetheless, that bond is strong. We are to accept one another in Christ. Why? Because the Spirit has made us one. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we once again think about the wonders of having the Holy Spirit indwelling us, that we and our bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit, where you actually take up residence within us. And you also, Lord, by your Spirit, join us to other members of the body. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to think through the logical outworking of these amazing truths. Help us, Lord, to not question your love for us. Help us to be confident and secure in your love for us, that we belong to you, that we are owned by you. Your seal of the Holy Spirit has been put on us. We pray for those, Lord, who are among us today who are having a difficult time, maybe with somebody in their family or somebody in their church family, other believers, Lord, in which there's a challenge in how to work through differences, I pray, Lord, by your Spirit, help us to find our way into growing by the fruit of the Spirit and dealing with those who are different from us. We pray that you teach us to accept each other, to forbear each other, to pray for each other, to be committed and seeking harmony with each other in a way that honors the gospel in your name. And for Lord, I pray for those who perhaps have never been willing to take the step to, to, be, to be baptized in water and to confess Christ publicly, I pray that they, would, Lord, would not stand in your way of what your Spirit wants them to be doing, but they would walk in obedience and confess Christ as Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.